Hello, America. I'm Dr. Jake Jacobs, and welcome to part three of our series, A Brief History of American Political Parties. Today, we're going to be discussing the democratic fight for a great society and civil rights. Now, in the last show, we actually talked about the origin of the Democratic Party and how, unfortunately, much of the Democratic Party platform was dedicated to the preservation of slavery, leading all the way up to the Civil War. We had back then what we would call Lincoln and Frederick Douglass Republicans. Lincoln and Frederick Douglass Republicans. Frederick Douglass was an amazing orator, a good friend of Abraham Lincoln. His son was in the, uh, the 54th Massachusetts Regiment, uh, the, the, one of the, the all-black regiment that fought in the Civil War. And these Republicans, as you know, Lincoln was assassinated at, towards the end of the Civil War, a few days after the ending of the Civil War. But these Republicans, whether you call them Lincoln Republicans, uh, uh, Douglas, Frederick Douglass Republicans, some historians would also say, let's include the Radical Republicans, they were dedicated to the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, the ending of slavery, civil rights, and the vote for uh, the freed slaves of the United States of America. Sadly, we talked about that the Democrats were still hell-bent on preserving some form of servitude or slavery uh, in democratic uh, southern part of the country. And they gave us Jim Crow, the Black Codes, the KKK, and things related. And there was the vote of 1876, where Democrats had uh, actually tampered with the vote, stolen the vote in the state of uh, uh, Florida, Mississippi, South Carolina, and other southern states. Thus, long story there, we talked about that last time, where eventually there was a great compromise where the Republican president was allowed to be president, but they demanded, the Southern Democrats demanded the Republicans, the federal government, get out of the South. And sadly, the Democrats gave for a hundred years Jim Crow, segregation, discrimination, in fact, between 1882 and 1964, almost 3,500 Republicans, 3,500 black and white Republicans, there were 3,500 black and 1,500 white Republicans that were lynched. The Democratic Party sadly stopped any Republican anti-lynching laws, believe it or not, all the way up to the 1940s and 50s in the United States. The party remained the party of segregation, unfortunately, for a long, long time. Uh, and one of the most, once again, one of the most uh, uh, racist presidents in American history was Woodrow Wilson. In fact, right here in the valley where the studio is, we have a junior high that's named Woodrow Wilson Junior High School. Or excuse me, I'm dating myself, Woodrow Wilson Middle School. Well, Woodrow Wilson actually undid a lot of the desegregation that had been done in the federal government, and he brought back segregation within federal bureaus. One of the first, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, the very first movie ever shown in the White House was a classic or infamous called one of the most reprehensive racist films in Hollywood history, The Birth of a Nation. Originally, it was called The Klansman. This was shown in 1915. And it really is a way of glorifying uh, the Confederacy, the Democratic Confederacy. Uh, very racist film. And here's a quote. There's a number of quotes that Woodrow Wilson gave about the film, but I have to read to you what Woodrow Wilson said about the film. The white men were roused by a mere instinct of self-preservation until at last there had sprung into existence a great 
Ku Klux Klan, a veritable empire of the South to protect the Southern country, Woodrow Wilson. Now, I don't want to necessarily dwell on Woodrow Wilson's racism. There are a lot of people that, you know, he was a graduate of, of Princeton, the, uh, I think the first and only PhD president we've had in our history. Um, they want to uh, unname a, a number of thing, buildings that are named after him. I'm not into that kind of stuff. But the fact of the matter is, if you read his, his PhD dissertation, it was called Congressional Government, a Study in American Politics. And then he also wrote an essay in 1887 called Socialism and Democracy. And here's the point about that dissertation in that essay, and I cover this in my book, Mobocracy, the Cultural and Political War to Destroy Our Republic Under God, in chapter 10, and the title of chapter 10 is Progressives and Bigger Government. Progressives and Bigger Government. And within my book and within the study of Woodrow Wilson, you find that he had a serious problem with small, limited government. Woodrow Wilson actually had a problem with Article I because he thought it gave way too much power to Congress. He wanted more power for the executive, for the President of the United States of America. He studied the British system, and he liked the British parliamentary system much more, and he felt the American Republican system was too slow, too egregious, and needed to have to be able to progress, to have more progressive legislation or progressive actions. You needed to have a strong central government and a strong executive. So he rejected a lot of our founding fathers' views of limited government, natural laws, and like I said, did not like Article I of the Constitution. Now, I think it's interesting. In the first program dealing with the early history of the Democratic Party, we found that in their platforms of 1840s, 1850s, they called, they said this, I'll quote, Congress has no power to charter a national bank. Now, quick history of that. When President Washington was president in 1791 and his secretary was Secretary uh, Alexander Hamilton, they created the first uh, United, Bank of the United States of America. It lasted till 1811. There was always this big, this, this big debate about whether we should have a central bank. Thomas Jefferson, the Secretary of State, did not trust a strong central bank. Alexander Hamilton wanted one. So did George Washington. The Federalists won out. There was a bank. But this was always debated in early American history. And then along came the second National Bank, uh, 1816 till 1833. And one of the early Democratic presidents was Andrew Jackson. As you know, the Democratic Party's uh, symbol, jackass, came from the name Jackson. People were picking on Jackson, and they called him jackass, thus the symbol for the Democratic Party. But Andrew Jackson said, wait a minute here. You've got a board of directors on this National Bank, and most of them come from the North, the industrial manufacturing North, and they're going to be uh, against the little man, the common man, against the farmer. And so you can see the development of a lot of Americans, farmers and, and, and you know, uh, blue collar type of people, industrial workers, saying we're, we're going to become Democrats because we don't want that party of big central banking. By the way, my grandfather, my Pepper Lafleur, was a devout Democrat till the day he died. My whole family, my mother's side of the family, my dad's side of the family, devout Democrats till, uh, in fact, all of them died. Yeah. But anyways, back to the central bank. 
what's a bizarre thing is that all of a sudden, Woodrow Wilson, this progressive Democrat, said, no, we need a central bank. Well, secretly, in 1910, on Jekyll Island, that in itself could be an incredible uh, show, a bunch of uh, rich bankers and entrepreneurs gathered together, by the way, I do emphasize secretly, and they created what would become known as the, uh, the Federal Bank, the Federal Central Bank, the Federal Reserve. And so in 1913, Woodrow Wilson gave us, and the Democrats gave us, the Federal Reserve Act, where they could control the monetary policy, where they could print money and determine the flow of money in American history. They also gave us, Woodrow Wilson also gave us, the Revenue Act, otherwise known as the Federal Income Tax. And so they created a, a progressive marginal tax rate, and Wilson and the Democrats promised, they said, look, we'll always keep it low between 3 and 7%, and lo and behold, <laughs> by 1918, it went up to 77%. So much for promises kept by presidents. But one of the good things for Woodrow Wilson is he actually gave us the 19th Amendment, the right for women to vote. Now, I think it's interesting about the history uh, of the whole uh, rights for women to vote is that at first Woodrow Wilson and the Democrats were, were against the right for women to vote. But they worked them, they worked them, they worked them, and eventually they convinced Woodrow Wilson, because he knew there'd be political power with the women voting for the Democratic Party, convinced him uh, to actually pass the 19th Amendment. Now, it's interesting, by the way, it took more Republicans than Democrats to pass it in the Senate. Southern Democrats were very much against the right for women to vote. One of the key factors with the Woodrow Wilson administration was his establishment of what we know today as the bureaucratic administrative state, administrative state. It really was a reflection of Wilson and the progressive's philosophy that we don't want laborious, slowed down legislation processes. We want to create a huge central government that can accomplish many according to them, great things. And so they expanded the government and created more bureaus upon more bureaus than ever before. Woodrow Wilson had a stroke in 1919, and by the way, that was kept very secret to the American people. And then he was, in essence, there was a shadow government running the United States of America for quite a while. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't, with old Joe Biden in office today, but I digress. Between the 1920s, 1921, and 1933, Republicans ruled the roost with Warren G. Hardy, Calvin Coolidge, and Herbert Hoover, but that'll be in our next show. Then in 1933, along came Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and he wins by a landslide. I'll tell you what, there's so much I could say about Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I mentioned my grandfather, Pepe Lafleur, a hard-working farmer from the UP there, don't you know? I can still remember my mother telling me that when, the ra when she heard on the radio that Franklin Delano Roosevelt had died in April of, of 1945, she went out to tell my Pippi, my grandfather, out in the field, uh, and he turned off his tractor, and she said he uh, got on his knees, and he prayed, and he cried. I'm telling you, my family was a real devoted uh, uh, Democratic family. Uh, and so what I want you to do is hear just a short little clip of his inaugural address from 1933 to give you a sense of the great oratory, the great voice that he had. Here goes. 
This is preeminently the time to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly. Nor need we shrink from honestly facing conditions in our country today. This great nation will endure as it has endured, will revive and will prosper. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I got goosebumps because it is a classic line. Roosevelt had a great way with words. He was a great orator. Uh, many cases he would take his speeches and Ronald Reagan would do the same thing and add a line, subtract a line, put his own, his own lines in there. Whatever you think about his New Deal and all the explosion of government, you have to say that he, according to many Americans, was the man of the hour. But now this is very interesting because... If you study the election campaign of 1932, Woodrow Wilson, as he traveled around the country, attacked Herbert Hoover, the Republican Herbert Hoover, which who we'll talk about in our next show, right? Part four. Herbert Hoover, he said Herbert Hoover was a big government spender. He was a big government taxer. He was not, uh, he was not taking care of the country rightfully by expanding the government and making it grow. He actually gave a classic speech, a federal budget speech in Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania in October of 1932. You should go in and study it because it'll blow you away because in that speech he talks about how Herbert Hoover was spending money and was creating debt and deficits galore and he was expanding the government. Even his vice presidential candidate called Herbert Hoover a socialist. And then he comes and he, by the way, he said, he, he says, if you vote for me, I will shrink government. I will stop the spending. And then he comes into office. And I know you're used to this president saying, a presidential candidate saying one thing on a Monday and then becoming president. And by Friday, they're doing totally different thing. That's exactly what FDR did. Because when he came into power, the federal government exploded. It was a reiteration, uh, a creation, expansion of Woodrow Wilson. A bureaucratic administrative state. Programs upon programs, spending upon spending. We've all heard of the alphabet soup uh, programs, the AAA, the CCC, the WPA, the SSA, the FDIC. The AAA, the Agricultural uh, Act, right, it limited, for, I'll give you one example of many, because this is a brief history, right? Uh, the, the Agricultural Act from FDR said, it actually limited how much wheat you could grow. There was a small, poor farmer in Ohio by the name of Roscoe Philburn, and he grew an excess amount of wheat, at least an excess amount of wheat, according to uh, the Democrat FDR, the federal government, and he got fined. And he was, they, the federal government said to him, shame on you for growing too much wheat. And he says, well, wait a minute. I, I'm using it. This is the Great Depression. I'm using it to take care of my pigs, my cows, to feed my family. And the federal government turned around and said, yeah, but you might sell it on the marketplace. And you could leave Ohio and go to Indiana. And you cross interstate lines. And it's a violation of the commerce law. 
Now, I know this gets technical, but what I want to tell you is that the expansion and explosion of FDR's government with the New Deal saw many things that infringed upon the liberties of millions of Americans, and it's a sad, sad thing. It's a famous case, by the way. It's called the 1942 Wickard versus Filborn case. A farmer who simply wanted to grow wheat to take care of his family. A number of wood, uh, excuse me, of FDR's uh, programs were declared unconstitutional, and this is when he wanted to stack the Constitution, excuse me, the Supreme Court with all kinds of justices that would allow, that would go with his progressive big government ways. And, of course, the Supreme Court even rejected that and destroyed that, ended that. Now, it's interesting. We're going to wrap up the, this time period in, in uh, FDR's history. His Secretary of Treasury, Henry Morgenthau, after analyzing and looking at the uh, New Deal, some people call it the Great Deal, some people call it the Raw Deal, listen to what he said in 1939 that got him in big trouble with Franklin Delano Roosevelt. We have tried spending money. We are spending more than we have ever spent before, and it does not work. And I have just one interest, and if I am wrong, wrong, somebody else can have my job. I want to see this country prosperous. I want to see people get a job. I want to see people get enough to eat. We have never made good on our promises, say, after eight years of this administration, we have just as much unemployment as when we started, and we have enormous debt to boot. Henry Morgenthau, Jr., the Secretary of State under FDR. Boy, did he get taken to the woodshed for revealing the truth. The New Deal did not end the, 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 uh, uh, the Great Depression. It was World War II, but that's another story for another time. Now, speaking of World War II... One of my favorite Democratic presidents was Harry S. Truman. The buck stops here, Harry S. Truman. Harry S. Truman dropped the bomb, and I got to say, my dad who fought in World War II against the Japanese came home. Bomb dropped, uh, dad home. Thank you, Harry, for doing that. I appreciate that. One of the key things about Harry S. Truman, FDR dies and he's the VP, so he takes over power is he had a strength. He understood the nature of the enemy, the nature of the Japanese, the nature of the, of the Nazis. And so he was a strong foreign policy president, even though it was only for you know, a little while when it came to the end of World War II. He also, one of the great things that Harry S. Truman did is he ended segregation, democratic segregation in the U.S. military in 1948. But you know, history sometimes is a lot more complicated than, than we want to admit. And I'm telling you, he's one of my favorite Democratic presidents. But when you hear what he's about to say, you might be a little uncomfortable. He's making references to the coming up passing of the 1964 Civil Rights Act with LBJ. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. So I want you to hear what he has to say about the Civil Rights Act. And be prepared, by the way, there's going to be as far as I'm concerned, some inappropriate use of language, racist language, but it's what he said back in the day. Here goes. There's a, another civil rights law now in contemplation, and eventually the whole situation will be worked out, but it takes patience and understanding. And you, the uh, people in New York, Chicago, and Boston particularly 
can't understand the attitude of the Southerners in this matter. If they'd stay at home and tend to their own business, and the niggers who've been invited to go up there and have, uh, find out that they're not half as well treated as they are down south, then after a while, there won't be any difficulty with it because I know, I come from a state, as, as I told you, a southern state, Missouri, it was admitted, admitted on a compromise to get into the Union. And the situation in Missouri has developed so that there is no ob objection whatever, as I told you about riding in a uh, dining car, coming to New York, where a table full of nigger women and nigger men were eating just like the rest of us, where nobody paid any attention to it. And as soon as the people get used to it, and the new generation grows up, we won't have any trouble with the subject. I'm not worried about it at all. Oh, there's a lot going on there. First of all, I'm really uncomfortable when I hear that word. I don't use that word, have never used that word. I've had, when I was a kid, friends that used that word. I actually got in a few fights over the use of that word. Um, my mother, uh, back in the day during World War II, her, she was called a Lovely Lady of Song. She sang big band, sang big band music uh, at the end, towards the end of the well, 1943, 44, 45. My mother lived in Detroit. She lived in Chicago. Her roommates were black, and my mother taught me better. And she she taught us to never use that word. And you're saying, well, Jake, here this guy, this president, you like to use the word. I'm not going to justify it or rationalize it, but just explain that was a part of the democratic Southern culture in that time period. And here, this guy who ended the democratic segregation of the military was using such language. It was quite common for, and by the way, Dixiecrats, Southern Democrats, to use that language. But it's also up in the North. Let's not let's not kid ourselves that those kind of things weren't happening in the northern part of the country also. But I wanted you to hear that because here he is saying, in essence, hey, you northerners, just leave us, leave us alone, and eventually all this segregation stuff will go away. Well, in 1961, in one of the closest elections in American history up to that point, John Fitzgerald Kennedy beat, I am not a crook, Richard Nixon. Now, we saw during the Kennedy administration his desire for man to make it to the moon, to advance ourselves scientifically. Uh, from my perspective, at least, he, he was supporting us in the Vietnam War, but he started putting troops in the Vietnam War. I won't spend a lot of time on that because LBJ, that was, he was the big guy with the Vietnam War. But the thing that I really remember Kennedy for the most is, is his tax cuts. It's absolutely amazing. People always talk about Ronald Reagan, shame on him for the tax cuts. You know, Donald Trump, shame on him for the tax cuts. Calvin Coolidge, shame on him for the tax cuts. But the fact of the matter is, JFK recognized something profound. He said the, ta the marginal, progressive marginal tax rate was too high. It was at 91%. He said we needed to lower it. He wanted to get it down to 65. He got it down to around 70%. Listen to what he said about tax cuts. A tax cut means higher family income and higher business profits and a balanced federal budget. As the national income grows, the federal government will ultimately end up with more revenues. Prosperity is the real way to balance our budget. By lowering tax rates, by increasing jobs and income, we can expand tax revenues and finally bring our budget into balance. Now, this is absolutely brilliant. This is not supply-side economics. This is like Secretary of Treasury Andrew Mellon under Calvin Coolidge economics. 
that in essence says if we lower the rate, we can not only create more jobs and more prosperity, we can actually bring in more revenue into into the federal government. That's exactly what happened. Unemployment went down, the economy expanded, and the federal government got more revenue. Sadly, the Vietnam War took away much of that prosperity. But here's another quote by JFK. It is a paradoxical truth that tax rates are too high and tax revenues are too low and that soundest and the soundest way to raise the revenues in the long run is to cut the rates now cutting taxes now is not to incur a budget deficit but to achieve the more prosperous expanding economy which can bring a budget surplus and if that's that's done right you see, people, you say, oh, Reagan, shame on him. That's for another topic, another our, our show number four coming up. But the fact is, it did work. And, and I hate to say it, but many big government progressive, uh, you know, types today, they don't want to uh, actually admit that John F. Kennedy did that. Now, by the way, sadly, one of the... Well, in, in my memory, one of the saddest moments in my life when it came to American history was the day I was at Catholic school. And we had at Catholic school, we had a picture of the Pope up there and, of course, a picture of the first Catholic president, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. And sister came in, Sister Benedict came in and told us that the president had been assassinated. By the time I came home, my mother was uh, in the living room, crying, watching Walter Cronkite tell us that the president was dead. And I can still remember on November 25th, 1963, little John John Jr., his third birthday, saluting his papa. I actually have this uh, framed picture you're seeing now for you people watching this. Uh, little John John saluting his papa. You can see Jacqueline and Sister Carolyn and JFK Jr. Uh, right behind him. Now... The country was sad after the assassination of Kennedy. It was right around the time the Beatles were incredibly big in England and they came over to America, seriously, February of 1964. And you know, she was just 17, if you know what I mean, and I was watching them on Ed Sullivan going crazy. The nation was looking for something like that. Well, not only that, but the nation was feeling really bad about what had happened to Kennedy and his VP, who was the president, LBJ, he was the pick, and he wins by a landslide in 1964. Now, unfortunately, like uh, Harry S. Truman, being from Texas, a Confederate state, he was notorious for a lot of his racist remarks, but I digress. He was also known for stealing the 1948 senatorial election. They call it the Box 13 scandal, where six days after the election, they found a box full of pallets. Uh, full of ballots, uh, 200 for Lyndon Johnson and only two for his opponent. Sound familiar? A little hanky-panky by the Democrats to get their guy in? Well, let's not digress about the stealing of any election, but he, in 1964, passed the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act. They took a lot of uh, Republican Civil Rights Acts from the 50s and got them passed. Great accomplishment. 
It took more, now once again, it took more Republicans percentage-wise and Democrats to pass it, but nonetheless, Johnson was able to use his powers as president and his connections with Republican senators around the country to be able to get it passed. One of the great accomplishments in this time period. Oh, by the way, the longest filibuster in history came from the Democrat Strong Thurmond in 1957 when LBJ was actually the majority leader of the Senate because Democrats did not want any, any of this civil rights stuff to pass. Now, one of the sad legacies of LBJ was the Vietnam War. By the time he got done with the Vietnam War, when he finally decided not to run on 19, March 31st, 1968, there were over half a million troops in Vietnam. I remember it well. My brother was drafted, and we were worried about my brother's well-being. And I can still remember a song we used to sing over and over again. Here's a little clip from the song, Hey, Hey, LBJ. Johnson had a button nose when first he went to Congress. Now it's long and crooked like a politician's promise. Hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? Sad time period. Many friends gone off to the war did not come home the same. That's another topic for another show. But LBJ had one more thing called the Great Society, where theoretically they were going to expand the administrative bureaucratic state, spend millions and billions of dollars to end poverty. It didn't work. It did expand the government, but it didn't work. And then along in 1976 came Jimmy Carter, Peanut Farmer Carter from the state of Georgia. Now, I have to admit, let's be honest here, uh, Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford didn't do the best thing when it came to the e e economics, the economy, with getting us off the gold standard and price controls, et cetera, et cetera. But Jimmy Carter made many, many major mistakes during his administration. Everything was double digit, unemployment, interest rates, et cetera, et cetera. And then the way he handled the oil crisis in July of 1979, and he gave a melee speech where he talked about pretty much, in essence, said, America's greatest days are over. Far from it, by the way. Then in 1992, another Southerner by the name of Bill Clinton came along from Arkansas. His first two years was a disaster. And then in 1994... We came up with the contract with America where a gentleman who was the Speaker of the House by the name of Newt Gingrich, a Republican, in essence was able to establish a landslide in the midterms of November 8, 1994, where they took back, they took 54 seats in the House and eight Senate seats. The advisor to Bill Clinton, Dick Morris, said, listen, Mr. President, what you need to do is have triangulation, come back to the center, work with the Republicans, and you can take the credit. And he did. He did. In fact, they balanced the budget four years in a row, and Bill Clinton took credit for that. Now, it was a combination of Republicans working with Democrats, but when you're in power, you take the good and ignore the bad and the ugly. And by the way, it's talking about ignoring the bad and the ugly. We're not going to talk about uh, his situation in the White House with Monica Lewinsky. That's for another topic, another show. Now, Barack Obama, 2008, the first African-American to be elected president of the United States. Now, he very cleverly said that, uh, you know, uh, George W. Bush was unpatriotic for his huge debt. And, of course, then he doubled the debt, you know. 
And But we know him probably the most for his breaking the groundwork for what we know today as wokeism. He really advanced wokeism uh, in many, many ways. He was working with, of course, Joe Biden. But one of the most notorious things is his Obamacare. But before we get to Obamacare, I want you to hear what he had to say the day he wins the Democratic nomination on June 3rd, 2008. Listen to just a little clip to a speech he gave. Then I am absolutely certain that generations from now, we will be able to look back and tell our children that this was the moment when we began to provide care for the sick and good jobs to the jobless. This was the moment when the rise of the oceans began to slow and our planet began to heal. <laughs> you know, just the other day, Nancy Pelosi, when they just spent like $400 billion on the Inflation Reduction Act, said that she, they saved the planet. Okay. Well, here's Barack Obama saying that he's going to, because he's got elected, he was going to be able to control the rise of the ocean and actually save the planet. I mean, I guess the path to hell is paved with good intentions, Mr. President. Speaking of good intentions, one of the main architects of Obamacare was a guy, MIT professor Jonathan Gruber. And you can see here he's got a great book, Healthcare Reform, written like a comic book so the average American citizen can understand the complexity of Obamacare, which was thousands of pages that we had to pass it to get it through the House and get it through the Senate so then we can read it and study it to know what kind of a taxation, how it was going to explode the federal government. Now, it's interesting to note that he, in essence, said, this Gruber said, we needed the American people to be stupid to pass it. Even CNN News declared, Obamacare architect calls Americans stupid. Okay, I want you to hear Barack Obama's uh, 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 architect to Obamacare speaking about the stupidity of the American voter. Here goes. You had a law which said healthy people are going to pay in. It made explicit the healthy people pay in and sick people get money. It would not have passed. Okay, just like the people, transparent, lack of transparency is a huge political advantage. And basically, you know, call it the stupidity of the American voter or whatever. But basically, that was really, really critical to getting the thing to pass. You don't want to be transparent. You don't want the American people to know what's going on. You have to rely on the stupidity of the American people. I hope, my fellow Americans, that the American people are aware and awake to what's happening in the United States of America as we approach another election. Will it be November 8th? That was 28 years ago on November 8th, 1994, when there was a historic turnover in Congress that hadn't been done since 1952. 54 House seats, eight Senate seats. Will that happen again? Hopefully the American people will be smart enough to determine their destiny. Now that's going to wrap up part three. Our next time we'll be closing out our series with part four by discussing the Republican fight for civil rights and American prosperity. I'm Dr. Jake Jacobs, and until we meet again, Godspeed and happy trails to you.